1: Welcome to the finale episode of After the Deluge, a Jackson Brown podcast. I had the idea for this show last fall, and I did a few interviews and really enjoyed them, but shelved it almost immediately because I just struggled to find the time to to make it happen. When the quarantine started, I just sort of picked it up and ran without thinking too much about it. And basically, this entire weird period in our world, which is characterized by a pandemic, and civil unrest around racial injustice has run parallel to this podcast, and it's even found its way into some of the conversations. I basically only know this period in history as something that overlaps entirely with this podcast, which in its own unique way might also be true for you as a listener. So it's a little bit sad to watch it come to its end, but it's also really satisfying and exciting. One quick note before I get into this actual episode: don't unsubscribe after this one. I'm calling it a finale because it's the last one in like the weekly series. But Jackson Brown is at work on a new album, and that's going to come out sometime in the semi-near future. And I'm going to pop up with a really special episode for that one. So stay subscribed, and then you'll find it in your feed when it arrives. And now we're going to take a quick sentimental trip down memory lane. Um, we covered four decades of music in three months on this series, and I cannot thank the guests enough. I love the 70s California record making. Like it's uh there's there's just something pretty great about everything. Kind of made during that era.
2: Jamaica was the lovely one I played her well. Some people just fucking have it. Not that Jackson Brown didn't work really hard. To be a successful musician and a successful songwriter, like it takes a lot of effort. But it doesn't matter how hard you work. You're not writing these days when you're 16. Well, I've been out walking really, it's about Jackson Brown's vocals playing off David Lindley's guitar. Like David Lindley's guitar is very prominent, especially on Late for the Sky. His guitar is just sort of shadowing
3: the vocal.
1: When it gets to that that uh heavier point in the song and then it kind of lets you down again just to end it it's like i just experienced a whole movie in two minutes
2: all under, dark and i was on my couch just kicking back and he said we're gonna play jackson brown's new album start to finish no commercials no interruptions it changed my life i'm not kidding
0: It's more than getting high in a hotel room hiding from Greg (laughs) Lundonny. It's more than, man, David Lindley. Does he haul ass on that pedal steel or what, right? Those things are all incidental, very powerful. But the truth comes down to a man and a piano, and it's time to leave. It's all over. There is no more music to be had here.
2: Now the seat's are all empty let the roadies take the stage pack it up and tear it down he had made five really good and at least in one or two cases i think truly superb records um in a row and that's you know a pretty extraordinary run yeah, you know, it went from MTV taking their cues from radio to the other way around. Radio started to take their cues from MTV. People were really trying to figure it out as they went.. I can't keep up with what's been going on. It opens up with you know, da, 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 da. yeah, so there's a hook. and then there's another guitar hook that comes in after that da, 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 da. yeah, there's just hook after hook after hook
0: like the tension the way he sort of challenges you that whether you're doing something or not it's all happening and probably ought to get in the game because if you don't probably the people you don't want to win they're in the game and they're making things go down in
2: the another the up and down the in the sound of the waves and the cries of the seagulls circling the sand
3: there's a right moment to, to where both the times down are down, right and the
2: artist is in the right moment to the restate, the restate their purpose or reassess why they're here down the towns along the shore.
3: my deepest understanding of his youth is in that song you literally think of this kid i always do like this weird beautiful poet child coming up in some sort of, like, church in the middle, like, off of
2: Sunset. Right with all my expectations
1: for any weirdo young music fan who's in high school or college or the 20s who is, like, for whatever reason, attracted to music by artists who are much older than them and like discovering their legendary albums there's always this really exciting moment when that artist puts out their first album of new material and it's like the you know since you've become a fan it's such an exciting moment standing in the breach is jackson brown's 14th studio album and was released in october of 2014 My first guest today is Anthony DeCurtis, who wrote the Rolling Stone review for Standing in the Breach. Our conversation starts with that, but we sort of spin that conversation into his whole career as we go. Anthony has covered Jackson Brown extensively during his time at Rolling Stone, and it really shows. He's written several books, including, in other words, Artists Talk About Their Life and Work, and Lou Reed, A Life. He's a professor in the English department at the University of Pennsylvania, where he teaches a few of the coolest sounding classes I could possibly describe. Uh, you'll hear a little bit about those in our conversation. You can find Anthony on Twitter at A. A-D-E-C-U-R-T-I-S. After Anthony, I'm joined by Angie Martosio. Angie writes for Rolling Stone as well and largely covers the singer-songwriter beat. Angie and I talk not only about Jackson Brown, but also about some younger artists who have been inspired by him or in some cases actively championed by him. I'll introduce Angie in more detail in just a little bit. Since Anthony's the one who wrote the Rolling Stone review for Standing in the Breach, I'm just going to lightly quote it here and save the rest for our conversation. You don't know why, but you still try, for the world you wish to see, Jackson Brown sings on Standing in the Breach. It's a characteristic sentiment, one that reaches back to the 70s, when Brown distinguished himself as one of America's most visionary and important songwriters. In now-classic songs like For Every Man, Before the Deluge, Running on Empty, and The Pretender, Brown took a hard look at why the values of the 60s seemed to die for so many people when the decade passed. Those values, freedom, compassion, generosity, remain vibrantly alive for him. On this superb, inspiring album, he once again stands waiting for every man. The change the world needs now, he sings, is there in everyone. What's most compelling about Brown is that he understands how greed and destruction in the public world devastate our private lives, rendering love both more necessary and harder to sustain. If you know someone who you think might like this show, pass it on and let them know that all the episodes are sitting right there for easy binging. Um, they're all pretty evergreen, so I think people can stumble upon them anytime and fully enjoy them. Hey, you can follow me on Twitter at Routine Layup, and if you're really enjoying the show, you can go to Patreon.com/AfterTheDeluge to support it and get some very cool bonus content. There is a link in the show description. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Anthony, and I'll be back in a little bit to introduce Angie. Oh, how sad they
2: sound, the songs. The queen must sing of dying. The prisoner upon her throne, the melancholy sign.
1: Anthony, thank you so much for joining this podcast.
3: It's my pleasure. I love to talk about
1: Jackson. I have really enjoyed the process of reading all the Rolling Stone reviews for these albums over the years. Oh yeah. And I particularly enjoyed this standing in the breach review from what I can tell. It's the first Jackson Brown album you reviewed. How did that come to be? And how do you like that process?
3: Uh, well, I had written about Jackson quite a bit, interviewed him many, many times. Uh, I think, you know, I was kind of for years kind of on the Jackson Brown beat for Rolling Stone uh, did long features with him and also wrote a piece, um, you know, for Men's Journal, which was part of, you know, uh, Jan Wenner owned it along with Rolling Stone. I did a a long piece on Jackson for that. And uh, so when this one came up, you know, I just got a phone call asking me if I'd like to write about it. And of course, you know, I was always interested in writing about him because, uh, you know, I think his work is very, very strong. And there's always something to write about. You know, it's not just an album. It's somebody, you know, just having a look at the times and, you know, the state of things and, you know, the state of his own life. And, you know, that was an opportunity that, you know, I was, uh, I was more than happy to take.
1: The way you describe that is exactly what I've felt in reading these, is that it's not just a review of that piece of music. It's a, it's like an assessment of the culture and how that music fits in the culture and how it fits into his career over time. And
3: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Jackson has lived his life on a kind of trajectory. I think all the interests have remained consistent, you know? I mean, there's a kind of certain, you know, a, a, a serious kind of literacy to his work. You know, he's, I think, one of the mainstays of what we think of as, you know, the singer-songwriter movement and uh you know just somebody who has that kind of you know degree of personal exploration. But then of course, you know, around the time of Lives in the Balance, hit the political interest that, you know, had always been there with him, I think, began to come to the fore. And as time has gone on, I think, you know, he's um, you know, intermingled those two things uh, you know, pretty successfully. And I think Certainly I think that's the case on Standing in the Breach, which is you know, I think he felt like there was, you know, he traveled a long road by that point, and uh, what you get on this album is, you know, what in kind of literary terms used to be called like an apologia. That doesn't mean like an apology, but more like an explanation of my life. Like, this is what I care about. This is why I care about it. This is what I think about. You know, these are the things that mean something to me.
2: It's how it's always been And I know you know it There can be freedom Only when nobody owns it
3: The album has a sense of a past, you know, has a sense of having, you know, lived a long life. and
1: there, There's a line in your review that I think it kind of puts words to a thought that I've been having, especially in talking about the two records that came out before this and then moving on to this one, which is, you say, the songs on Standing play like conversations between lovers trying to reassure each other of their commitment in a world that devalues the human connection of any kind in favor of profit, Which, which is that it's easy to look at some of those first albums and think like, introspective, brilliant, um, romantic poet uh, type. And then it's yeah. easy to like transition over to the the like sort of overtly political ones of the 80s and think activist who is fighting the good fight. I'm Alive feels like a revisiting of of so, some of the earlier stuff. And then by from Looking East on, and especially on this album, he's kind of doing both. But the way you put that here, the reason that resonates with me is that it's like, those two things aren't totally separated. And if you think of them as a conversation between lovers, like the state of the world matters in the state of your, it, it has an effect on the state of your heart.
3: Without a doubt. And and, and yeah. this album
1: does that. And I think, I think you did a good job putting words to that. And
3: Yeah. I think that with Jackson, I mean, I remember the first time I really did a long interview with him was in 1987 uh, for a 20th anniversary issue of Rolling Stone. And um <sighs> The initial idea for the interview was that we were going to talk about art and politics. One of the things that I remember Jackson saying was that, you know, he really liked political songs that were kind of rooted in people's lives, you know, that weren't just, you know, this is what's wrong with this policy, but this is how these kinds of actions and things that are happening in the world affect actual people. And there's, you know, I think some of that is going on here on, uh, you know, Standing in the Breach, you know, the idea of the forces that are at work on us politically and socially affect our emotions and what we feel and what our expectations are. And, you know, it's it's deep, you know, uh, and I think he, he handles it pretty well. I mean, it's it's a tough road to hoe i mean it's yeah. it's complicated and um if
1: you so let's get into some of the songs like the long way around which comes pretty early in the album says i could feel my memory letting go some some two or three disasters ago it's hard to say which did more ill citizens united or the gulf oil spill and i'm a yes. long way gone down this road i'm on i could feel my memory letting go. so so first off like what you're saying these things that are happening externally are affecting us internally like i could feel my memory letting go some two or three disasters ago is like yes. the sort of snowballing piling on of, of things that can sort of make you disillusioned and i mean what's happening? You can just substitute Citizens United and the Gulf oil spill for like global pandemic and civil unrest, racial yes. civil unrest. It's like, it, it can it can sort of wear you down, and and I think that's kind of what you're getting at. Like, you're you're seeing this through the eyes of a human character that's feeling it spiritually and emotionally, but you're talking about what's happening in the world.
3: I think long way around. I mean, this is a little glib, but you know, certainly when I was thinking about it, it seemed to me like almost an update of running on empty, you know, just the traveling the miles, you know, how far this road I've gone, you know, this kind of idea. There are a lot of references like that on this record.
1: He's playing a chord progression that's, is definitely nodding to these days and then references that says that in the first line of it. Yes, And then as you say, you can kind of feel the the DNA of something like running on empty in there too. I don't
2: know what to say about these days. I'm seeing people changing in the strangest ways.
3: You know, there's a point on the record. uh, It might be on the title track uh, where, you know, he just says, look, I I realize like these things may never come to pass, like all these things that I want, you know, but I feel like they're in, you know, the possibility to achieve a greater world is in each of us. And again, there's a reference that seems to me back there to For Every Man, to that idea, like, you know, we could talk about the big issues all we want. But, you know, it's about us individually to make a commitment to try to do something. I think Jackson believes that, you know. I mean, look, I was around Jackson. You know, I remember being with him uh, in, in L.A. one time. I can't even remember what story we were doing. But, you know, in the afternoon, like, Jackson was running around you know running errands for you know some particular cause that he was involved in i mean running really basic errands like bringing something from one place to another place you know to you know in his car you know it's just like wait here in the car i'll be out in 10 minutes you know that kind of stuff like he wasn't just showing up you know to play a song at a at a benefit like Jackson lives it you know
2: and you know the world you're waiting for May not come, no, it may not come, but you know the change the world needs now is there in everyone.
3: I'm quite sure he's excited about the activism. You know, I think he would feel like, you know, this is something that is long overdue and you know so necessary listening to this album which came out what is it six years ago Uh, it's almost sad how relevant it still is you know all these things you know that that piling up of disasters that you alluded to you know has only gotten worse I mean it's a daily occurrence now yeah you know when when on this record you know there is a, a kind of realism there's a a kind of clarity in Jackson's vision about, you know, whether or not we're going to get what it is we hope to get. Yeah, man, that question has only gotten more challenging.
1: This will be the last time that I, I recite your own words back to you. I promise that. But that's um, quite all right. <laughs> so at sixty six, Brown has been an activist long enough to realize that his most firmly held ideals may never achieve fruition. But like John Lennon, he's enough of an artist to understand that imagining that world as it should be is the first step in bringing about that world. Kind of lines up with everything we're talking about right now.
3: Uh, the things I felt like were important when I wrote that review. You know, when I revisited it for our conversation. Those things still seem to be the important aspects of, you know, I'm a few years younger than Jackson, you know, I've gone on the ride, man, and it's difficult to kind of, uh, you know, be around at this time and see where all those hopes and dreams have come to, you know, which I think is one of Jackson's, certainly, you know, in the 70s was one of Jackson's great themes. It's like, what happened to all this stuff that we cared about in the 60s? I mean, that was a major major theme like where did that go you know making an album called the pretender you know like that idea that um started out so young and strong only to surrender you know it, you know that's quite an indictment
1: yeah it is it that song kind of hits you with like these very very simple day daily life details that really can like stop you in your tracks and like assess what you're doing Absolutely. As you said, like he's he's referencing some some frustrations and trouble in the world on this album, and then we're, here we are six years later. It's going to be pretty fascinating to see what he has to say about that.
3: Without a doubt.
1: To transition to a song like I Could Be Anywhere, he, he references... To, he's released two songs from this new one, and one is very climate-focused, and that's not even something we've talked about, but he has a line in I Could Be Anywhere that's... But all the plastic ever made is still here, and no amount of closing our eyes will make it disappear. They say nothing lasts forever, but all the plastic ever
2: made is still here. No amount of closing our eyes will make it disappear. And the world can't take it very much longer,
1: which feels very relevant.
3: You know, I mean, there's one point where it's almost like kind of a sarcasm, you know, that, you know, the idea of inventing something like plastic that just won't go away, that he almost, he almost calls it like the pinnacle of human achievement, you know, Jackson inherently, you know, is an optimist, I think, you know, there's that California aspect to him. (laughs) Uh,
1: So uh, we've spent a good amount of this time talking about that sort of him looking outward at assessing the world around him but what's interesting about this album is like it also has i'd actually say that a lot of his recent albums are intermingling the personal with the sort of societal he starts it with the birds of saint mark's which is an old song right and if i understand correctly it was about my understanding is that it's about nico yeah
3: that makes sense to me he hasn't specifically said that and it's unlikely that he would say it but Uh, that's certainly what I thought about. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I wrote a book about Lou Reed a few years ago. And uh, the whole Nico business and Jackson and Nico's first solo record, all of that stuff is, you know, all bound up together. And yeah, The Birds of St. Marks is, you know, a song that he wrote, you know, just before he was about to leave New York and go back to California, uh, which a move that made, I think, consummate
2: sense, for him. To call back all the birds I sent to fly behind her castle walls, and I'm weary of the nights I've seen inside these empty halls.
3: But his relationship with Nico and, um, you know, what he picked up being in New York, I think you know, proved valuable uh, to him. And this song is an example of it. You know, he talks about, I mean, there's the question of the birds of St. Mark's, you know, St. You know, St. Mark's place is being referenced there, which was, you know, pretty much the main drag of, of that era on the, on the Lower East side, the East village, as it came to be known at that point. And, you know, the birds are, you know, those birds that fly around New York and many other cities, uh, but it's also the birds, the Byrds. I mean, it's a folk rock tune. He talks about Nico's interest in the birds, which certainly I'd never read about anywhere else. Uh, but you know, and he talks about uh, you know their sound, that kind of chiming twelve-string guitar that Roger McGuinn, whose name was Jim McGuinn back in those days, uh, played, and you know that's what he was—he was trying to evoke that sound and that folk rock thing. I mean that was crucial for Jackson. Yeah, yeah that you know, in, in many ways, that's still the kind of bedrock of his sound.
1: So cool. Like, I, would I, I'd be curious, like, why that song didn't end up on anything until now? And it, I think it sort of developed some sort of like prestige and legend about
3: it. Yeah, a lore. There's certainly a yeah. lore group about it. But you know, look, Jackson is nothing if not obsessive. You know, and I think he was writing songs that seemed to me like those early records, which I love seem so much uh, a product of living a life in California. You know, that I think, you know, a song about Nico and hanging out on St. Mark's place and, you know, just must've seemed out of step. And then after that, you know, then comes the political stuff. And so, you know, at, at, you know, by the, by his mid sixties, I think you know you can go back and all the reasons that you have for doing this or doing that, uh, you know, they kind of a little bit fade away, <laughs> you know, because by that point when you're listening to his, it, gee, that was a pretty good song, and I'd like to use it, and I think that's the sort of feeling I get for that here. And you know, when we talk about this album as as reflecting a journey traveled, having a song that he wrote. 40 years earlier as the, as the first song, I think, you know, sets up that emotional theme very well.
1: You're kind of in its own way, you're kind of getting it at this perfect time and it's something familiar. And like the first song on an album and, and I firmly believe the first song on a Jackson Brown album, a lot yeah. of the time is like a real tone setter. Yeah. And, and it, it, it puts you in a place, if anything, it could be a little, I could actually say definitively, there are some people who listen to and love Jackson Brown that don't want to hear him say anything political, any of that stuff, that, that subset definitely exists. And if you get like this first song, birds of St. Mark's that you've maybe heard before, and then this song that's kind of nodding to these days a little bit. And next thing you know, you're in something and hearing something you might otherwise avoid. Like there's a little bit of subversion to that, that I think is cool.
3: Yeah. I think Jackson gets that. You know, I mean, I don't think it makes him happy to think that there are people who are put off by the political stuff. Uh, And, you know, to be fair, uh, look, I remember reading a piece about Don Was, who was talking about a Was Not Was record, uh, you know, that had a kind of social aspect to it. And he was responding to that question and then just said, look, but, you know, it's like we're not Jackson Brown, like standing up on stage with a pointer, you know, indicating troop movements in Nicaragua. And it pained me to read that, you know, like, I mean, even as it's a good line, you know, it, it pained me to read it because it it just, it indicated a certain kind of uh, stereotypical view of Jackson that I think would have been hurtful for him to see. And, you know, but look, after, um, World in Motion came out. I did a feature in Rolling Stone where I was hanging out with Jackson for a few days in Philadelphia and, and in New York and you know, I wrote the piece, and you know Jackson really didn't like it <laughs> you know, i mean we uh I mean he called me up like it was early in the morning in New York, so it must' have been much earlier in Los Angeles, obviously, and he woke me up and it was just like look and you know i just saw this story and i want to talk to you about it now there was nothing we could do about that point it was in the magazine you know but yeah i tried to explain to him you know he was like look you know this record has all these political ideas on it and i was like look jackson you know we've done that story you know i wrote that story a bunch of times you know you've talked about it a million times I, the politics are in this piece but I felt it was important for people to, you know, experience this other aspect to you, you know, the, you know, Jackson's funny and he's, you know, there was a kind of sexiness about him. You know, I mean, I remember one time, you know, I brought him up to Rolling Stone, uh, you know, we were, uh, you know, I just, you know, just come by the office and meet me and then we'll go do whatever we need to do. And, you know, man, like every woman who worked in that office was like, Suddenly, you know, hanging out by the desk or over by the copy machine or just wandering through the corridors because they wanted to see Jackson Brown, you know, (laughs) I'd never seen that really before. I mean, you know, Rolling Stone, there were plenty of rock stars who were in and out of that place. But, you know, it was a thing when Jackson came and I wanted to get at some of that. And, you know, I think Jackson felt like that I was you know, sort of diminishing him a little bit. You know? Whereas I, I sort of felt like I was trying to like present a more three-dimensional view of him rather than the guy with the pointer showing troop movements in Nicaragua. You know,
2: well, you know, I don't lead you, you know, I don't feed you no lies. Yeah, yeah. And it's not up to me to tell you what you see through your eyes. Yeah,
3: yeah. You know, fair enough. You know, like, it, you know, that's what was on his mind. And uh, we discussed it. I mean, he was, you know, you know, he was direct, but he was, you know, he wasn't yelling at me. You know, he was like, look, this is how I see myself. Like, this is, you know, he, I think he was disappointed, you know, and wanted me to understand that he was disappointed, which, you know, made me feel bad. But I, I honestly think I was right, you know, and I told him then that I thought I was right. You know, I wouldn't have done it if I didn't think I was right, you know. The
1: job is to gather information about a person or in their music and be the person to tell the story in a way that's fair and lines up with what you think is accurate. It's not to write the thing that's going to make the person happy. Well,
3: exactly. You know, and I also felt I was more conscious of this then than I would be now. But, you know, I... And I'd written a lot about Jackson and I felt like we had covered that, you know, the whole political thing. Nobody in their right mind would ever have walked up to me and just said, you don't think Jackson Brown's a serious social minded person. You know, I felt that that had been fully established and that what had gotten lost were these other qualities, uh, both in his music and of him as a person. So that's what I was, I was, you know, trying to emphasize there uh, in a three dimensional way, you know, not to, you know, not to eliminate politics, but you know, that's look, this is a discussion that comes up all the time with Jackson, you know, friends of mine and you know people who share his politics, even, you know, there's a case to be made that, uh, it, you know, it kind of cost him, in a way.
1: Yeah, I, I can't put words in anyone's mouth, but it's like maybe cost him in a way, but but based on the music he's continued making cost him in a way that he seems pretty comfortable and fine with
3: without a question oh yeah absolutely no he yeah. you know i don't think um yeah i mean ultimately i think it bothers him a lot more you know that that story i wrote didn't emphasize politics enough than people saying oh gee he's too involved with politics i think he can handle that would I think he doesn't like the other thing very much at all. (laughs)
1: I'll decide after if I keep this in it. But uh, as part of this, I've joined a couple of like Jackson Brown Facebook groups and I'll just share the episodes as they come out. And it's like, this this is, these are people who like Jackson Brown. This is a good place to share them. And one of those groups is pretty explicit about not having, um, discussing politics which on one hand is funny to me when you talk about think about his career on the whole but on yeah. the other hand it's very very understandable because facebook is a horrible place to talk about politics so i get well, it sure. but i i posted the episode that had uh Lives in the Balance and World in Motion on it. I didn't even say anything political. I just posted those albums. And before I before anything could happen on it, not only did that get deleted, but I got banned from it, <laughs> from the group. Oh, wow. That's dark. I, I was like more amused by it than anything. I yeah. Like, wow. I, I, I
3: mean, I understand it, but still, that seems extreme.
2: You wait for the tears to fall, but they won't. You think you should know what to say, but you don't.
1: Stepping back from all of that, how did, even beyond being a music writer for Rolling Stone and someone who's covered Jackson Brown extensively, how, how did you come to his music even prior to writing about it? Or is that what brought you to his music?
3: You know, I just heard, as, as a music fan, I mean, I heard Jackson from, you know, from his first record on.
1: Can you remember how old you were when that Yeah, would have come oh, out? Yeah, I what was it,
3: 19, was it 1973?
1: 72, I think, that one.
3: 1972, so I would have been 21. Uh, 20 or 21. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I really liked it. Uh, You know, I mean, look, my background is literature, you know, and so Jackson's use of language and, you know, his his writing is still very distinctive. You know, that made a big impression on me. And, you know, there's a kind of beauty to those songs that I find still very attractive. You know, I mean, when you get to something like, you know, I point this out all the time to my students, you know, like just a line as simple as in this bed where we both lie late for the sky. You know, obviously the metaphor of Laid for the Sky, you know, you're going to miss your plane. (laughs) But also, like, you kind of miss that opportunity to take off, to soar, to really get there. And then also in this bed where we both lie, you know, we're laying here, but we also, we're not really being true to each other. We're not even really being true to ourselves. You know, Jackson can get that much done in those few words. Uh, So, yeah, so those early records, you know, been a... Made a big impression on me.
1: Yeah, God, that just like talking about those those lyrics from from Lay for the Sky will give you chills. It's just too so much there.
3: Oh, completely.
1: my home has grown the shadow
2: of a cruel and hand. Though in some strong hearts, the love and truth
3: I mean, I could hear the greatest record in the world right now, and I'd be really excited about it. But it's not going to change my life, you know. But hearing a great record when I was twenty, that, you know, that could alter the direction in which I go.
1: That's actually been a cool recurring thing on this on this podcast. Is people who I'm talking to who are talking about the album that meant the most to them. It's like it kind of is like equal parts the album and equal parts the moment. And and well,
3: without a doubt, that's what music does. You know. Yeah. There's a kind of innocence on those early records. Jackson was kind of inventing a form, you know, not that, you know, there were other singer songwriters around, we know that, you know, but, you know, Jackson's point of view, his voice, you know, that kind of almost, um, you know, kind of hymn like sense of melody, you know, all of that stuff, I mean, let alone the words, you know, uh, make his, those songs really distinctive. And there's such a generosity in his vision. You know, I think you know a song like "For Every Man." Make it on your own if you think you can. I think everybody knows, you know, that song was meant to be, uh, you know, a response song to wooden ships. You know, the David Crosby and the Jefferson Airplane wrote that song about, you know, just sailing away and getting away from it all. And Jackson's like, no, man, if it's not for everybody, it's no good. You know, and I think, I think he really believes that, you know, I mean, look, it comes up on this record, you know, as we discussed in the title track, you know, and that's inspiring and it, it's inclusive and it's, you know, it's warm and it's human. And, I, you know, man, those qualities endure. When I hear those early songs, even as, you know, they're not terribly well recorded and Jackson will be the first person to say that. You know, he told me one time, you know, that who was working with John Landau was the first time he really felt he got a decent drum sound on his records. You know, the, those early records are not perfect, but, um, you know, sonically. But those songs, they're just lovely.
1: And and there is charm to be found in sonic imperfection too,
3: right? Yeah, without a doubt.
1: Like I, I had this moment today. So as I'm driving around, I'm listening to Standing in the Breach. It runs all the way through. I was streaming it from my phone in my car. And so it ended. The last song ended. I wasn't quite home yet. Um, and so it auto did whatever the algorithm will do to you. Yeah. And then it gave me – it served me up um, – Jamaica Say You Will Ooh. track one first album and and I've had the unique experience of like I'm listening to these things pretty intently each week as I move from album to album and so I've kind of like time traveled 40 years slowly yeah. away from that first song on that first album and it was kind of cool to like finish the most recent one
2: Jamaica was the lovely one I played her well As we lay in the tall grass where the
1: shadows fell that couldn't have been better. Yeah, just it's just the piano itself, and it is just a really cool like. God, I kind of want to cycle back right through all this, and the go round is going to be just me listening to them and not taking any notes.
3: Yeah, very good.
1: Um, so you teach you teach literature.
3: I teach creative writing. I um, mean, it's uh, the main course I teach is called the arts and popular culture. Uh, it's a seminar. It's small. I teach at the University of Pennsylvania. And then I, you know, I also teach courses that take music as kind of creative spurs, you know, for people to, you know, if they want to write their own songs or to write short stories, or to write poems or to, or to write criticism for that matter, you know, um, you know, not this coming spring, but you know, the spring of whatever twenty twenty two, I'm going to be doing a singer songwriters class and, uh, you know, using Jackson certainly and. You know, everybody else who none of whose names will surprise you to to kind of get them to think about what that kind of writing can be like in other forms.
1: I am jealous, I would love to be in that class. Where do you live? <laughs> I live on Orcas Island, Washington.
3: Oh, okay, so you're away away. All right, yes, I was going, going to say now, if you live near Philadelphia, you could come and sit in sometime. But, uh, yeah, that
1: sounds good. That's,
3: so a, that's so a long fun. journey. <laughs>
2: Everyone I know, everywhere I go.
3: Eventually, I'm from New York originally, and I moved back to New York, and when I came back, uh, you know, about a year after I got back, I got hired at Rolling Stone, and that was that was really the beginning. You know, I mean, I'd done a bunch of stuff before that uh, at smaller places, but, you know, when I got to Rolling Stone, you know, it began to make an impact and create opportunities for me, and it was just an incredible thrill, and, you know, certainly writing about Jackson and being on as I put it, the Jackson beat was, uh, was exciting. It was really, really fun.
1: Is it right to say, so I think Kit told me this or he, he, I don't think he, I think he alluded to this, but that there was, you'd mentioned earlier that Jackson Brown made the move from New York to California and that made sense. And it makes total sense to me. I am, I'm originally from California as well, but, um, I, I feel like he hinted at like, uh, some East coast music writing writers not necessarily being fans of like what Jackson Brown and the Eagles and the people at the Troubadour and stuff were doing. Oh, without question.
3: Yeah. 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 Not at Rolling Stone. I mean, because, you know, Rolling Stone was still, you know, I mean, I guess there were some people at Rolling Stone who felt that way. Uh, Yeah. Like Chuck Young was certainly part of that cabal. And, uh, but uh, and, you know, the Village Voice was absolutely where, you know, I'm more associate Kit with writing. Uh, do you
1: think it's just like an East Coast sensibility type thing or what? It was oh, a little, you little bit,
3: you know, punk was on the ascendancy. And so, you know, I mean, Jackson got painted with this brush a little bit, but I think it was more about like the Eagles. You know, there's a certain, you know, all of that kind of like California indulgence, you know, <laughs> uh, I think would rub. Uh, you know, people who were like living and dying with what their next Ramones record was going to be, you know, it would rub them the wrong way, for sure. ¶¶ You know, because Jackson was more or less David Geffen's first signing. I mean, I don't think that's literally true, but he was. I mean, he brought them. He brought David the Eagles, essentially. And of course, the Eagles and David Geffen would have feuds. And, you know, David Geffen gave Jackson his publishing back. You know, when people sign with a label, you know, they make a deal. And, you know, David was his manager. And, you know, Jackson, you know, has all his songs, you know, and has had them for a long time. And he told me one time, you know, that Henley, you know, they were talking about Geffen and, you know, it's hard for Jackson to be critical of David Geffen, you know, because David was very nice to him. But like, you know, Henley said to him, you know, like, well, we didn't get a little Christmas present from David Geffen the way you did, you know, this kind of thing. Jackson, in his way, you know, said to me, he goes, well, you know, I really feel like David did that because he kind of knew, like, I wasn't, you know, really... You know, Jackson wasn't a business guy and it was not necessarily going to be easy for him to, like, manage his own career. So if he had his own songs and had all that income, you know, obviously, unless he somehow gave that up, you know, it would be hard for him to make too bad of a mistake. And uh, at least that's how Jackson viewed it. Whereas I think Geffen viewed it as like, uh, you know, I mean, I sort of think David was in love with Jackson, (laughs) number one. Number two, I think, um, you know, I think he felt like, well, he brought me the Eagles and I'm definitely gonna make a fortune off these guys, you know. So he deserves you know, he deserves some acknowledgement for that.
1: His commission.
3: Yeah, completely. That's a little <laughs> chip for him.
1: So like someone like you said, David Geffen with big fan of Jackson Brown, the same well, the same was true of Jan Winter, right?
3: Oh, without a yep, absolutely. But that was, you know, that's one of the reasons why Jackson got covered so thoroughly in Rolling Stone, you know. I mean it was Jan thought he was important and wanted his stuff out there. And I'm going to mm.
2: rid myself a house in the shade of the freeway. going to pack my lunch in the morning
1: and go to work. I kind of give myself little breaks from listening to Jackson Brown to make sure it's a thing I like love full heartedly for my whole life. I I just always thought of his first five albums as being sort of equally scattered through the seventies, but really those first three come out like in consecutive years. And I just think like, this is a songwriter. I, I, I absolutely. I look up to more than anybody's amazing to me, lyrically, melodically, everything. And the idea that those like, Ten songs on the first album, ten songs on the second album, and eight songs on Lay for the Sky are are three years worth of creative output it just sort of blew my mind. Like it's like how do you possibly yeah. do that?
3: Like it was sort of great. You know, like the you know, so many classic albums that we think about were like a half hour long.
1: It's possible Jackson Brown and some of the and listening to that music from my parents has shaped this, but I prefer a 10 song album or, or 10 songs yeah. max. And
3: you know, sometimes less is more.
1: I think the point you made earlier about, um, you, you make these early albums and you're sitting on a song like the birds of St. Mark's, but make the choice to not include it on that, like finite collection of songs because the, the collection says something and that song would say something different that would take yes. you out of the like larger hole. Like it, that's kind of the, you're curating those songs because they they stack next to each other tastefully. And yeah,
3: you know, and Jackson's a little bit that way anyway. I mean, he seems to have this kind of like, you know, yeah, hey, he's free and easy. He's Jackson Brown. You know, he's, you know, brushing the hair out of his eyes every 20 seconds. But, you know, Jackson is an obsessive guy, you know, and um, I'm sure if he, you know, found a reason about a word and a line in a song, that was that. You know, that wasn't going to make it on. You know, yeah. it could be the best song that is ever written. And, you know, he was, uh, he didn't get it the way he wanted it. That was
2: that.
1: times at ridgemont high and and can really bounce to somebody's baby and it was funny to have the conversation about like somebody's baby was recorded around the same sessions of that album and and jackson brown essentially makes that same choice to like no i'm not putting this on the album and yes
3: yeah i mean his record company must have wanted to fucking shoot themselves you know he has this big hit you know, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, it didn't suit Lawyers and Love. I mean, Lawyers in Love is a really interesting record. And, you know, Somebody's Baby is a great song. You know, it's a great radio song. And I love it every time I hear it, but it's not that, you know. Yeah. It's not, I mean, even an image like Lawyers in Love was so perfect. Very perfect for that time. You know, it was like that and The Pretender are like, very early indictments of the yuppie culture, you know, it, um, everybody's negotiating, everybody's, you know, out for theirs, you know, even in, even in love, you know? Yeah. I remember talking to Jackson one time about the song lawyers in love and, uh, there's a W. H. Auden poem, which I, I will attempt to recite this verse if I can remember it. Like love, we don't know where or why like love, we can't compel or fly. Like love, we often weep, like love we seldom keep, and I remember reciting those lines for Jackson, and i I don't know what he he sort of like I thought it was something that would really kind of intrigue him, but it didn't um but uh, I don't know if he thought I was suggesting like he'd stolen the idea or something which I of course wasn't. that happens all the time by the way if you you know if you ever say to an artist like this reminds me of that, like they never like it.
1: they receive receive it purely as like yeah like
3: yeah i mean at worst as a potential lawsuit or like at best like it's derivative you know whereas what i was saying was like look that's a really great image that one of the 20th century's great poets also used
1: i kind of admire that he'll uh let you know he doesn't like it
3: (laughs) yeah well he didn't let me he just didn't respond but he was like oh yeah that's interesting you know whatever like but the other song on the album <laughs> it was like that.
1: Right. Well, I am. This was really awesome to talk to you. Yeah,
3: this was fun, man.
1: I really appreciate having you around to talk about it.
3: Super, man. It was a really fun conversation.
1: There's
2: a train every day, leaving either way. There's a world to know.
1: You got a ways to go. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. We are going to wind this thing down by talking to Rolling Stone writer Angie Martosio. I got some emails and comments early on in this series from people who were kind of initially skeptical about a Jackson Brown podcast coming from a millennial. Well, Angie is almost 10 years younger than I am, and she has the same depth of love for his music. She also has a firm grip on new music. And so we're going to introduce you to some artists in Jackson Brown's orbit like Phoebe Bridgers, Dawes, Tal Wilkenfeld. And Blake Mills. These are all really good songwriters. Um, And in addition to that, we're just going to talk about Jackson himself and what his music has meant to us. You can find Angie on Twitter at Angie Martosio. A-N-G-I-E-M-A-R-T-O-C-C-I-O. How long have you been at Rolling Stone?
0: I was an intern in 2014, which honestly feels like forever ago now. And after that, I left and continued to freelance here and there. And then I officially came on staff in 2018. Well, so So I was, uh, oh, sorry. I was going to say I was, um, Jan Wenner's assistant. Actually, that's like my first level there at the job.
1: (laughs) Incredible. That's super cool. Well, awesome. So then how does, let me see how to characterize this. Like some one of the launching points for this podcast was I don't tend to run into people and I don't tend to have a bunch of friends who all like love Jackson Brown or even like, or know Jackson Brown. That being said, I know that he's, he's a big artist and he's a respected artist, but the way it's come up multiple times in the podcast, especially at the beginning in in the early albums, he's not, he's not typically like mentioned when you talk about like Neil Young and Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell on this sort of, uh, songwriter side of things, and then when you talk about like these sort of mega hit '70s uh, pop bands like the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac, he he's kind of like on the fringes of both of them, maybe somewhere in the middle of them. How did you come to find Jackson Brown, and have have you had any kind of similar experience? Is he?
0: Um, I mean, first off, like I came to him as many people do through my parents. Where my mom graduated high school in 1973 in Miami in this very suburban area and like Late for the Sky came out and that was like her album of the year. And so I grew up like just knowing those songs and like obviously beyond like Dr. My Eyes, this was something that I really strongly like related to. And I remember being a child and of course, like a lot of parents of that generation, my mom would play like Bob Dylan and Neil Young and Joni Mitchell was always around, but I always loved hearing Jackson the most just because of his songwriting. And I really related to it even as like a, a preteen because, you know, he was so, his songs are so bummed out sometimes and they're so relatable when you're at that age of adolescence. Um, and that was really it. Like my mom to this day, like when I hear a lot of his albums as I'm living far away in New York now, um, it's a very emotional reaction that I have where I miss her when I hear it automatically. Nice. <laughs> and now on my own, like as a journalist, like, obviously, my peers in the office are very aware of him. And especially through our magazine, he's been covered throughout the decades. Um, he's very close with Jan Werner, our founder. And beyond that, I mean, I have a lot of friends in Brooklyn. It's, of course, like I worked for years in a coffee shop. Like I spent like 10 years working in coffee. And a lot of them, I had a lot of baristas who would play Dr. My Eyes all the time in the cafe. But it was never beyond that. And that kind of drove me crazy sometimes. So I'd be like, there's so much more than this. Of course, it's an amazing song. But as you know, as many Jackson fans know, like that's just like the beginning, like starting point for how what he's capable of.
1: Yeah, and what's kind of cool about Doctor My Eyes is like, not only is there more than Doctor My Eyes, there's kind of more to Doctor My Eyes than you're probably hearing in the background of the
0: coffee shop. It's a too, really right? sad song, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, totally. <laughs> After my eyes have seen the year and the slow parade
2: of fears without crying. Now I want to
1: understand. But that said, if you took it and you like, here, listen to this, and put on Late for the Sky in that place, it might <laughs> it's gonna do a different thing to the vibe in that in that room, I'm sure.
0: Totally, and I have colleagues who are I mean, I'm 28 years old, and a lot of my colleagues who are younger staffers they kind of make fun of me that like my Harry Styles is Jackson Brown. (laughs) Like that's what they equate it to because that's how excited I get when he, whenever he's brought up or whenever I do get to interview him, like I love it so much because he's just incredible.
1: Yeah. It's, it's funny. I was on a, on a call with a bunch of coworkers recently and someone, someone said something really specific that they were doing. And I, (laughs) I said uh, like, Oh, I wish I loved anything as much as you like that. I don't remember what it was. And then one of my colleagues said like, Yo man, you're making like a, a 14 episode Jackson Brown podcast. I think you do. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. That's a good point. I think you're definitely right. and so how do you so you're 28 years old. I, I see you you write about more than just um like 70 singer songwriters and classic rock and like deep dives into like the Neil Young discography and stuff. But what's your what's do you have like a beat there? Do you have or do you tend to follow that stuff or how do you determine what you're writing about?
0: It depends. I mean, that usually is my beat where it kind of rotates around anniversaries of albums or specific moments in classic rock history. I really go for that kind of thing. Um, And it also is just about like what I want to pitch. I kind of have this dual focus of older singer songwriters and then like newer indie rock artists. (laughs) So um, I love to like sit down with like, you know, a 21 year old artist as like um, we have that franchise called Artists You Need to Know. Yeah. And I, I do tend to write about that if there's a new album coming out or I'm pr- approached with that. Um, but I also kind of like to have a mixture of that where like my you know, deep dive into Neil Young's catalog was really just me being like, hey, I'd love to write this. It's time that we do one of these on him. And they would, my editor was like, yeah, no problem. Let's do it. <laughs> so I kind of like to keep both of those um, in balance as I work. Nice. So.
1: Well, that's, I mean, that's a pretty great transition to one. one thing you and I talked about before this conversation was looking at, I don't know, the current generation and how Jackson Brown might influence them. And I think some good examples are like you, you actually connected me with Jonathan Bernstein, who I interviewed for the, the previous episode, and he just reviewed the Phoebe Bridgers album and wrote an article about Blake Mills. And you and I have talked about that a little bit. And Phoebe Bridgers had an album come out recently. These are people that are outwardly vocal about Jackson Brown as an influence. Yeah.
0: Oh totally and of course like as with I what I just said where I love this this whole like era of the 70s and like anyone who came from that and I try to really keep my cool when I have like a really young artist being like oh I love Jackson Brown and like my eyes kind of widen and I'm like oh really that's that's cool tell me about that but really I'm just like bursting with emotion because it's so exciting that he's really caused this, there's so many of them who are so influenced by that. And I don't even bring them up, they just tell me. So it's, it's pretty amazing.
1: I think something that Jackson Brown does is, I know I hear it in Phoebe Bridgers, for sure, is, is like, yeah, these are, ca- these are catchy, pr- kind of accessible songs. But kind of like what we just talked about with with Dr. My Eyes, there's beyond like somebody's baby they're not just those pop songs like there is a thing happening beneath it similar and like on the new phoebe bridgers album the song kyoto like you can bump and bounce to that but there's another thing happening there and i think jackson brown does that really well and so do some of these specific artists we're talking about
0: I mean, with Phoebe, it's very evident in how introspective her song lyrics are and how deep she likes to go. And she can still kind of elevate that with like a great melody and make it kind of lighter, very similar to like, I See You on that, uh, the Punisher album and things like that. And she mainly, she opened up by talking about Jackson through her brother who was named after him and started to tell me, yeah, her brother is literally named Jackson (laughs) and, um, (laughs) And just because her mom was a super fan and her way of saying, like before we even talked about his influence, she was like trying to tell me how kind he was to her because they met. And the way she put it was like, I still actually wrote this down for my transcript, which is just that she said, he remembers my fucking mom's name. And that was her way of like stressing just how generous he is to younger songwriters. Um, And I really thought that was cool where he's so personable and, all of them have told me this, from Phoebe to even Tal Wilkenfeld, this bass virtuoso. Nice. Yeah.
2: I walk the same road to work each Monday. Every step tears out my
1: heel. One of the obvious ones is Dawes, who a couple of their band members have played on some of his albums. It's another band that you could hear... You just hear the influence. It's just there. And now
2: the only piece of advice that continues to help Is anyone that's making anything new Only breaks something else
1: well about like you having some of these interviews and jackson brown coming up in them i remember like kind of like peak arcade fire like maybe i don't know if that's like 10 years ago or so like grabbing a magazine in a in a friend's house i don't even remember what magazine it was and then just kind of thumbing through it and kind of being not even far into the article i should look for the article but just like four or five mentions of jackson brown like i remember the feeling being I'm not even like a gigantic Arcade Fire fan, but now I want to do all the work I can do to try to become one <laughs> because-
0: Exactly, like, totally. Yeah. yeah, that's how I felt about Dawes. I mean, I saw that in 2011, there were videos of Jackson and Taylor Goldsmith performing together at Occupy Wall Street. And I didn't really know who Dawes was at the time. And I was like, all right, well, I don't know this band very well, but if they're you know playing with Jackson, like I'd love to get to know them more.
1: Yeah, um Jonathan was talking about like he he's so a lot of these artists that we're talking about are Southern California people, right? That and and that mm-hmm. there's a little bit of like a like personable influence, like not maybe super loud and vocal about it, but just a he seems responsive to be to being an influence. I mean, he sang on a Phoebe Bridgers song and it's just kind of a cool uh colliding of worlds for me and it sounds like for you too.
0: Yeah, and it's also how he treats them, I think, is something to really like discuss, where it's that he has stressed to a lot of them, Like he does not like being called a mentor, because <laughs> um, he wants to be treated as an equal. So um, I had Tao Wilkenfeld tell me that, where she's like, yeah, he doesn't like me calling him that, even though he's my teacher, and his response is, well, you teach me too. And it is because not only is he like generous to them, but he teaches them, he sits down with them he gives guitars to a lot of younger musicians. He introduces them to others. I remember um, he introduced how Lokenfeld to Ben Montent, who ended up playing on her record. So it's that he kind of becomes this like great, not only mentor, but just like he connects them with others in the music world. And he really wants to help out, which I think is really important.
1: Very cool. He, and and as you say that, like it's easy to see that in terms of being a mentor um, because he's older and been around, but If you kind of think of how he fit into that like troubadour um, Laurel Canyon scene, like when he's in the seventies, he's kind of existing in that same way, right? He's kind of floating around among all these people and all these things that are happening there.
0: Oh yeah. And then in preparation for this interview, I came across a video I hadn't seen in a very long time. I think it was like 2013 and it was Blake Mills and Fiona Apple and Jackson singing inside this like California cozy I think it's like a coffee shop. <laughs> like you would honestly think it's from a long time ago, just because it really echoes the entire vibe of the early seventies in California.
1: Awesome. So did you, here, here's a question I'll have that I, I asked this question cause I've spent three months zipping through week by week, every single album. And, and honestly, <laughs> like I, I've been forthright about the fact that like, I, this is the closest I've ever listened to lawyers and love and lives in the balance and world in motion. Like I, I was aware of what they sounded like. I was aware of what they said. I was aware of like the, how they were received and everything. But it, it was really cool like kind of diving into those. Have you listened through everything? How do you feel about it as like Jackson Brown's full discography? Is-
0: it's a hard question, right? Because like even Lawyers in Love, if you spend time in record stores as I do, I've come across that record. And I don't think I, I know of another album cover that's made me as happy as Lawyers in Love just to look at. It's almost like he's trying to navigate through the 80s with this paddle in water on top of a car. (laughs) um, So I can definitely see why it's a little off-putting even now to listen to. It's, It's harder music. You know, he was trying to figure out how am I supposed to go through the MTV era. And I think looking back now, I really do, like, I do enjoy the music, obviously. I don't turn to it as quickly as I do throughout the 70s work. Um, or even for that matter, like the early aughts, like I do think Standing in the Breach is great. And the new album that's coming out in the fall is fantastic. Um, But it really depends on like how emotionally tied to those records I do feel. And that isn't really the 80s for me.
1: Yeah, I think that's, there is a context when I will put those albums on now. And I don't think I knew what that context was in the past. Um, Mm -hmm. Again, none of that's going to supplant Late for the Sky or, or For Every Man or Running on Empty for me, but it, Kind of like the, the story, you the, the piece you did with Neil Young, right? Neil Young's the most exaggerated version of this, of like almost any artist you can think of. But I know that a podcast like this would be really boring if it just was singer-songwriter songs for four decades.
0: Yeah, totally. And I mean, Neil's 80s are also like, and then you could do an entire podcast on just those 80s records alone. There's so much to say for how bizarre some of the songs are, but how they've also really... I don't know. I, I think maybe it's because I'm a super fan and I'm obviously biased, but I love records like Landing on Water. I think it's fantastic. So it, it really depends on either like your perspective on it now, how you felt about it then. And I, I really do think it's been so many years since that it's a great time like you're doing with this podcast to look at it through this lens of like, let's focus on someone's discography and spend time with these albums that were panned.
1: Yeah. if if even i a person doing this podcast wasn't inclined to like sink fully into those albums in the 80s like a lot of people who drop off from something like that won't also even hear the ones in the 90s or the 2000s and but if you're going one if you click subscribe on a podcast feed and you go one at a time it can kind of like carry you through without committing to listening to them and getting some context going into them and it's like especially cool that it's going to lead up to him putting out a new album like you just said like
0: yeah and i'm sure knowing jackson that he definitely probably heard about this podcast and was really thrilled and honored because it's you know something that you don't see every day
1: well Angie, thank you so much it's cool to talk to you about this As you can probably tell, that interview cut off in the final seconds, so you don't hear Angie saying goodbye, but I want to thank her so much for joining me, and thanks to Anthony DeCurtis and to everybody who came on the show. I had a lot of fun doing it, and it was really just gratifying and just really cool to kind of sink into these songs in ways that I never had before. And I also want to thank my family, my wife Bianca and my kids, Noah and Milo, who are seven and four. Whether you know it or not, you've heard them in the background of these <laughs> episodes more often than not. And uh, my cat, who hangs out in the room with me while I do it. Take a moment to rate and review. If you have not, um, that's another way for people to organically discover the show. Thanks again, everyone, for listening to it. Please do pass it along, and uh, keep an eye out for another episode in the months ahead. I am going to play you out with a little bit of one of his new songs called Downhill from Everywhere, which will appear on that forthcoming album.